It's my honor and privilege to uh, bring God's Word to you this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Romans chapter 1. It's going to be a while until we get there, um, but we're uh, in a series called uh, the Solas, the five Solas of the Reformation, and today we're going to be talking about Sola Fide, only faith. There was a man that was walking across a bridge one day, and he saw another man, and the man looked like he was about ready to jump, and he said, uh, stop, stop, don't do it. The man said, well, why shouldn't I? The man said, well, there's much to live for. And he's like, well, what? I don't have anything to live for. Well, are you religious or atheist? Religious. Me too. Are you Christian or Jewish? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you the original Baptist Church of God or are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915, to which the man said, Die, you scumbag, and pushed him off. (laughs) Yeah, it was a terrible joke, yes. It's a denominational joke. Um, Why do we have all these different denominations? Why do we have all the different churches? Think about it. We have Catholics, Episcopalians, Anglicans, we have Lutherans, Methodists. Pentecostal, Nazarene church, non-denominational churches. We have the Church of God, the Church of Christ, Bible churches. All of these churches, where'd they all come from? In our series entitled The Five Solas, we're looking at the five pillars or main points of the Reformation. And us as a, as a preaching team, the preaching pastors have the opportunity during the summer to go to different campuses uh, with one of these solas. And uh, it's my joy and honor to do Sola Fide here at uh, my favorite campus, our family's favorite campus, Sugar Grove. And uh, looking forward, by the way, I say that at every campus we go to. Um, just kidding. No, this is our favorite because this is ours. And, uh, and so we're in Sola Fide. So today I want to go uh, at the first, at the beginning, and look at the history, our history as a church, and then look at our hope as we talk about Sola Fide from Romans chapter 1. Protestant churches come from what is known as the Reformation. The Reformation was a 16th century religious movement that was marked by ultimately a rejection uh, or a modification of some of the current Roman Catholic church theology of the day. The Reformers modified or changed or did away with some of the doctrine and practices of the established church and that then gave us Protestant churches. Today we're going to go back to the beginning because you may be thinking, well, where did all the churches come from? Maybe this is your first time coming to church and this is going to be new to you. Maybe you've been a longtime church member, attender, and this is going to be a refresher and that's going to be great too. But let me begin with this question. Audience participation is a good thing. Who started the church? Jesus started the church. If you are asked a question in church and you don't know it, just say Jesus. It might, might as well probably be right. Jesus was and is the Lord of the church. 
Ephesians 2.20 says that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and of the apostles. It's the word of God. And that cornerstone is Jesus. And we are being built up into the image of Christ, but also as a people of God, being built up as a nation, as a people of his kingdom. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And so we are united by the fact that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. So is the church buildings? No, the church has buildings. Is the church programs? No, the church has programs. The church is people. It's you and I who are part and parcel of the church. When you become a Christian, when you come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you join the universal church. You become a member of the church that has existed for 2,000 years all over the world. And you join the church along with other Christians all over the world today as a matter of the fact of your faith in Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the birth of the church and back to the time of Jesus. And when Jesus was put to death on the cross and he died for us, and the disciples find out that Jesus had to do this, Remember, the disciples didn't understand that. The disciples didn't understand that Jesus, even though he had told them that Jesus must go to the cross, that he must die for the sin of his people, to redeem a people to God Almighty. And we go back to the beginning, and Jesus dies. And then three days later, people begin to talk that Jesus has risen from the dead. And pretty soon, about seven weeks later, the world was beginning to be turned upside down with the message that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And these disciples and these apostles, these first ones to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, began to go throughout the known world and to plant churches and to start the church. How could they have done this? We read their story in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are waiting to receive the Holy Spirit promised by the Lord Jesus Christ. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers these once cowards to now take the message of the cross and of the resurrection and of the return of Jesus Christ all over the world to to the risk and loss of their own life. So how was the church set up? Well, the early church was set up like this. There were leaders that were part of the greater leadership of the church. We just came out of the series in James, and you remember James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and James doesn't appear to believe in Jesus as Jesus is uh, walking in his life and ministry as he's alive, but it's after the resurrection that James comes to faith in Christ, and he becomes one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. You have Peter that's a leader in the early church, and so you have these leaders, uh, part of the greater church. And all of them are missionaries. We heard from some of our missionaries today, but not only were they leaders, but they're, they're also missionaries. One of the greatest missionaries who wrote approximately two-thirds of the New Testament was a guy whose old name was Saul, and his new name was Paul. Paul was one of the missionaries that planted churches. Barnabas was another one. Timothy and Silas and John Mark. These were missionaries that went out from the early church to start new churches. So you had leaders and missionaries, and then you had local elders. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas are going from 
town to town and they're starting churches and they're appointing elders to oversee the work and the life and the ministry of the church. Elders or pastors or bishops. People who are called by God to lead the people of God. Elders are not super Christians. Elders are not perfect Rather, elders are men who are trusting in Christ and in his finished work on the cross and who are walking in humility as they serve the people of God. In the coming days, we're going to be introducing a a new group of elders that will be joining our elder team here at Sugar Grove Campus. We're very excited and thankful for these men and we're looking forward to presenting them to you. It's a a big uh, size group really to come on board Uh, our elder team, but we're so thankful for the need that God has grown us as a congregation that we need these men to help come and to shepherd and to serve and come alongside Christians and to witness to non-Christians about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so would you pray for that in the days ahead? Would you pray for them as they prepare to lead and to shepherd? So the first church was made up of leaders and missionaries and then local elders. And most of the churches in the beginning were Jewish because the disciples were Jewish. And they would meet and they would evangelize in the synagogues. But then increasingly so, the churches became more and more Gentile. Churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus... And as the gospel began to spread throughout the known world, churches began to crop up out of every ethnicity and race and tribe and creed. As a matter of fact, by the end of the third century, uh, the gospel had penetrated into Rome and beyond into Europe and even up into England and to Scandinavia that the world was being turned upside down with the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's look at three different aspects of our history this morning. The first one is this, the record of the church. The record of the church. The scriptures that the church used were the Old Testament, just like we have, and then they had the letters that were circulating among the churches. Letters from Paul, letters from Peter, letters from the apostles, whether it's First and Second Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Then they also had the Gospels, the four Gospels, the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the end of the fourth century, the canon was finalized. The canon is what you have before you. The New Testament canon was finalized with these letters, with these books that were called then the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God. Now you might ask, well, how was that put together? Who were these people? Were they just grabbing books from who knows where, and saying this is the word of God? No. As we heard last week, we believe in sola scriptura. We believe that God ordained and led the direction of the selection of the canon, and it was a a strict process. It was governed by three guidelines. Number one, the first one is it had to have a apostolic origin. Meaning, it had to be written by an apostle, or it had to be written by one who was close to the apostle. And so every book in the New Testament has apostolic authorship. Now the gospel according to Mark, Mark was not an apostle. John Mark was not an apostle, but he was close to Peter. 
a disciple of Peter. And the gospel according to Mark is really Peter's eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so apostolic origin was critical to be considered to be part of the canon. Secondly, the book or letter considered had to be used in the churches, meaning it had to have universal acceptance in the churches. Had to be used, had to be read, had to be used in liturgical services of the church. So the churches are passing around these letters, and they're known to one another. Third, had to have consistent content. The book, the letter, had to have consistent content. If it didn't go along with the rest of the accepted, the accepted books and letters, if there was weird, wacky stuff in those books, they weren't considered. They weren't to be considered. And so we have, some of your Bibles have in the middle, the Apocrypha. That is, the between the Testaments, the apocryphal writings that weren't included in the Old Testament or New Testament canon, but some of your Bibles might have them. Some of the stories that you find in there are a little far-fetched or a little bit hokey, such as the story of Jesus uh, down playing uh, next to the creek with his friends and he gathers some mud together and he blows in it and makes a bird and the bird flies away and his friends are amazed. You can tell a difference in the stories because of the content. Is it consistent? Is it historical? Does it match the other eyewitness accounts? So the record of the church had to have apostolic origin, had to have universal acceptance, and it had to have consistent content. The early church also had the Didache. The Didache was a book that had the life and practice of the early church and, and the life of practice for early Christians, believers. What about baptism? What about communion? And so we have a record. Now, if you accepted Jesus Christ, if you came to faith in him, In the early times of the church, you were immediately susceptible to persecution. Your business could suffer. Your way of life could suffer. Your family could suffer or even be put to death because you were part of the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans were very acceptable of all different kinds and manners of religion. But they were not acceptable of Christianity. Why? Because Christians refused to declare that Caesar was Lord. Why? The early Christians declared that Jesus is Lord. And so they would be arrested or they would be persecuted. And even under threat of death, these Christians were told to renounce Jesus Christ. Just say Caesar is Lord. You you don't even have to really mean it. That's what they said to Polycarp, 86-year-old man who served the Lord. He sat under the Apostle John's teachings. And he was being led to being burned at the stake. And he said, hey, you're an old man. Just, just say Caesar's Lord. You don't even have to mean it. But these early Christians would not confess the untruth because Jesus is the only Lord to be praised. They took their faith seriously. And they were torn apart by beasts for the sake of not renouncing the name of Christ. Secondly, part of our history was the birth of the religious state. So as the church began to grow, the Roman Empire began to change, and it had a lot to do, but not all to do, with the Emperor Constantine. The story goes like this, and there's some discrepancy as to the truthfulness of it. 
But toward the end of his life, Constantine told the story about how he had went into battle. They were far outnumbered, and he went into battle against an opposing army that was led by a man who was into mystical, paganistic religion, and he was said to be calling on all the powers of the universe to give him the victory over Rome, to give him the victory over the emperor Constantine. And Constantine said that he cried out, O Supreme Most High God. And he had a vision. He said he had a vision, and there was a cross in the sky, and he heard a voice say, By this sign, conquer. And so he had the cross put on all of the shields of his warriors, and they went out to battle, and they won the battle despite the odds. An amazing victory. After that, Constantine then recognized Christianity as an acceptable religion of the Roman Empire. Now, it's not true that just because Constantine recognized Christianity that Christianity flourished or grew. No, because um, all throughout the known world, uh, not even just in the city centers, but out in the country, first in the city centers, Christianity was popping out, but now in the country, churches were popping out. Believers were beginning to grow. And so the church had to be recognized, and it was But after it was recognized, then it became part and parcel of the Roman Empire, and you have the mixing of church and state. And they merged together, and now this was not just the Roman Empire, but it became the Holy Roman Empire. And some of this mixture can be seen in in some of the things that we even commemorate or celebrate. Take, for example, Christmas. Christmas we celebrate December 25th. What does Christmas celebrate? The birth of Christ. Back in that day, the the pagans worshipped the sun and the sun god. And around uh, December 21st, the winter solstice, they would worship the sun's birthday. They would light candles and they would give gifts and they would have feasts. Now you can see how this merges with Christianity. Christianity took over, and no longer was it the the celebration of Saturnalia, but it was the celebration of Christ's birth. So these pagan festivities were replaced with, rightfully so, the creator of all there is, the Lord himself. Now this might betray some of my political views, but... It seems to me that when government gets a hold of something, things don't work out quite as well as they could. And I would say that Christianity fell on dark days as it was no longer just Christianity. It was the Holy Roman Empire. And it was the birth of an empire that would lead us to the days of the Reformation. As popes began to crave power and come into power and begin to direct kings and princesses, princes, the days became dark. We have the Dark Ages. In 1095, Pope Urban II began the First Crusade. And he said that anyone who would come, anyone would come and fight, would fight against the Muslims. The Muslims were encroaching from the east and, and the south. And if you would go and fight against these infidels, if you would stop them from encroaching upon the, the, the Holy Empire... You would be well paid for. You would be taken care of. Your family would be well taken care of. And not only that, but this is the kicker, not only that, you would be granted an indulgence. And this indulgence is given to you so that you can get out of purgatory quicker. So the teaching of the day was that if you're a Christian, you're saved because Jesus died for your sin, but you still got to pay for some of your sin. And so you go to purgatory. 
And then indulgences were said to believe to give the person who was granted it by the church an exception, a get-out-of-jail-early type of card. And so it was granted first under Pope Irvin II. This would lead us to the days of the Reformation. Now, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could this teaching that is not in the Bible about indulgences or about purgatory, how does this happen? Well, it has to do with the way that the church viewed Revelation. The church said that this is Revelation. This is the revealed Word of God. But this revealed Word also needs Revelation to interpret it. And that's why God has given us the church. And so the church and tradition became equal to the revelation of Scripture. And that brings us to the 16th century and to a man named Martin Luther. Luther said, no, Scripture is the final authority, as you heard Pastor Phil talk about last week. And the church had gotten off course. And he didn't set about to, but he ended up changing really, the course of the history of the church. Martin Luther was born in Saxony in 1483. It has been claimed that Martin Luther has had more books written about him than everybody except the Lord Jesus himself. He was a monk that taught at Wittenberg, and he was so entrenched in the thought that he could never please God, he could never find satisfaction for his guilt, he could, he could never please this righteous God it wasn't until the, in the reading of Romans, and we'll hear about that today, that he came to realize that God is righteous, but that we're saved to become righteous like him by his grace through faith alone. It is not of works so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. There was a person in Martin Luther's days named John Tetzel. If you wanted to irk Martin Luther mentioned the name John Tetzel. Mentioned the Pope. If you mention a lot of things, you get Martin Luther fired up. He was a fiery guy. John Tetzel, he was going from town to town in the Roman Empire, and he was raising money for St. Peter's Basilica to be built in Rome. I've been to St. Peter's Basilica. It is beautiful. And then I read the history of how it was built. Tetzel would go around from town to town. He would raise money. He would sell bricks, brick by brick, to, to be built at St. Peter's Basilica. And he would say this, you could sponsor a brick and pay the money and we'll give you an indulgence. There's the indulgence again. His saying was this, and I think it sounds better in, in German, but this is the English. The moment the money tinkles in the collecting box, a soul flies out of purgatory. Martin Luther heard this. He said, this is not right. People were using the fear of hell or the fear of purgatory to get money. Not unlike televangelists who are taking your great-grandma's Social Security money and then flying around the world in their private jet. That's similar. Tetzel was going around raising money and saying, if you give money, we'll give you a get-out-of-purgatory early card. And Martin Luther said no. So he came, he took a stand before the church, 
And he was brought to trial and, and he said this, Martin Luther, I will change my mind if you can show me anywhere in sacred scripture that I am doing wrong. Well, of course they couldn't show that he was doing wrong according to the scriptures. He was doing wrong according to the councils, according to the Pope he was doing wrong, but they couldn't prove from the scriptures that Martin Luther was teaching anything heretical. So he had to go into hiding for fear of death. He went into hiding, he translated the New Testament into German, and the Reformation began. And and other reformers came along, John Calvin, Zwingli, and out from there came three different movements. First, Lutheranism, which spread from Germany to Scandinavia. The Reformed Calvinist Church went into Scotland and France and Holland and Switzerland, and then the Church of England. And from these three branches have trickled down now all the way down to 400 plus denominations. The reformers fought hard and some gave of their lives for these five pillars. And we turn our eyes, our attention today to sola fide, by faith alone. And this is our hope. This is our hope. So you got your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. If you are using a pew Bible, it's page 939, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I want to ask two questions before we read this. The first one is this, what is the gospel? And the second is, um, what is faith? What is faith? Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1 gives us a definition. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in my language, I wrote down this. Faith is believing in someone or something that we cannot see or understand completely. How about a few illustrations that we understand what faith is? How about riding in an airplane? I have faith in the law of gravity because I can't see gravity, but I can see the effects of gravity. So I I have faith there. But I also have faith that this airplane can conquer gravity. And that this um, big, giant hunk of metal can hurtle through the sky at 600 miles an hour. I put my faith when I get into that airplane. Now I have a fear in flying, so 50% of the time I have a faith in that plane that it will work. But I don't know how it works. I know there's aerodynamics and the shape of the wing and all that stuff, but I can't fly the plane. I don't understand. I don't get it. But I have faith in what I cannot understand completely, what I can't see How about turning on a light? I walk into a room, the room's dark, there's a light switch, I turn the light switch on. I'm not an electrician, I know it has something to do with electricity, I know that there's wires that go to that light bulb, but I don't really get it all that much. Um, All I really do have faith in is that when I hit that light, it'll go on. I believe in something that I really can't see. Or how about accessing the world wide web on your phone? We have this incredible contraption that we can pull out and we can access the universe on our phones. Isn't that an amazing thing? I don't know how it works. I don't know exactly where it goes. I, 
Um, all I know is that if it takes like longer than two seconds, I'm mad. Come on, Google, it's been three seconds. So you gave me those star charts of distant universes. If you're a kid, you don't understand that 20 years ago we had huge bricks for phones. So you'd be very thankful for what you have. But we have faith in everyday things we don't even realize. Faith is believing in someone or something that we cannot see or understand completely. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the Romans and he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. He says that the righteous will live by faith. Verse 17, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You want to be right with God? You want to please God? You want to do what's right? You want to... The righteous will live by faith. Now God has given us evidences all throughout creation and throughout history. It's not as if he's left us with nothing to bolster our faith or to base our faith in. We have creation. We have the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the historical record. Even the way that we are made indicates that we have a creator God and that we will never be fully satisfied until we know this God. That we can fill our lives with so many different things, but at the end of the day, if we do not know our creator God, we will be empty. I want to read some scriptures to you. Um, I know that all scripture is profitable for reproof, for teaching, instruction in righteousness. I know that, but this is a thrilling passage for me because Jesus is talking about me, and he's talking about you in this passage. It's in John chapter 20. And before I read the verse that I want to get to, I want to back up a little bit and read part of it. This is about um, faith. Jesus has risen from the dead, John twenty twenty four. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, this is a great answer, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Do you believe in Jesus? Jesus is talking about you right there in that passage. Blessed are you who believe and have not seen. Faith. Faith. So what is the gospel? What do we put our faith in? Our hope in? Number one, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Salvation is to be saved. To be saved from what, you ask? Well, the reformers would talk about three things. They would say to be saved from sin, death, and the power of the devil. First, we're saved from sin. 
in, in two different ways that we're saved from sin. First, we're saved from sin's power over us, its control over us. And then secondly, we're saved from the eternal consequences of sin, namely God's punishment and wrath, his righteousness upon sin. First, we're saved from sin and its power. We receive forgiveness from God Almighty when we turn to Him by faith. And that the sin that would so easily entangle us does not have its power anymore. We're set free from this. We're saved by the gospel, the good news, that Jesus died in my place. He died for me and rose again. And if I would believe in him, if I would have faith and follow him, that I would be saved from sin. And I'm saved from the wrath of God. The next verses in Romans chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I know that I am ungodly. I know that I'm unrighteous. But I am saved. The gospel is God's salvation to me from the right punishment that I deserve from God for my sin. That Jesus took my punishment for me on the cross. First, we're saved from sin. Second, well, let's stop here for a second. Who's sinned? Who here has sinned? Okay, audience participation. All right, ready? Nobody wants to do this, but everybody... Oh, two of our good. Everybody stand up. We're going to do a little exercise here to see who sinned, okay? I'll tell you a funny story after this, too, by the way, um, from the first service. Um, okay, so I want you to sit down. I'm going to name a sin. I want you to sit down if you've committed it, okay? All right, we're not telling anybody. We're all. You guys are scared. Wow. Okay. Sit down if you've ever stolen anything. Okay, just like the first service. Everybody watch your wallet. Everybody watch your wallet. We, everybody, go ahead. Everybody can sit down. You guys are honest. That's great. Everybody did the same thing. Everybody sat down. And I had a whole list of things to go through just to have everybody sitting down. And, and the stealing is just a common thing. Yeah, man. Watch your wallets. So I had steal, I, whoever stolen, whoever's taken the Lord's name in vain, whoever dishonored your spouse, whoever lied was the last one. I was going to say, whoever's lied, sit down. And if you're still standing, you're lying right now, so sit down right now. It was, yeah, it was my, I didn't even get to that joke at the first service because like the whole room just whoo, sat down when I said stolen something. Man, we're praying for the first service people. And the second service, people. You, I forgot. So we're saved from sin. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. The only one that was righteous was Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and died for us in our place. We're saved from sin. We're saved, secondly, from death. Jesus Christ conquered the grave through his resurrection. He is risen again from the dead. Given, giving life to all who would believe and have faith in Him. And that's why even in the face of death, we can rejoice in God's provision. You can be rejoicing even as you stand next to a fresh grave, knowing that Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus Christ brings everlasting life. And then the power of the devil. 
We are saved from the power of the devil. The devil is an angelic being, a real angelic powerful being who the scripture says uh, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If Jesus Christ lives in you, you have nothing to fear from the devil. The devil trembles at the name of Christ. Demons believe, by the way, they believe in Jesus and they tremble. We believe in Jesus. We have faith in Jesus and we bow our knee to Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, as our Redeemer, and even as our friend. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Secondly, the gospel is for all who would believe. For all who would believe. Doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. We've seen that all throughout church history. Jesus is saving a people, his people, from all tribes and languages and tongues. In the book of Revelation, we see a great throne, a great throng before the throne of God who are made up of the tribes of all the world and they're singing God's praise of his salvation. No matter who you are, if you would come to him by faith, the gospel is for you. This good news that you can be saved is for you. Third, the gospel gives sinners the righteousness of God. The gospel gives sinners the righteousness of God. First, it's the power of God's salvation, verse 16. It's to the Jew, but it's also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This is the great exchange. The great exchange that Jesus died in my place for my sin. That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for me and for you. So that we might have the righteousness of God in him. So that we would be forgiven and that God would look at me and not see my sin, but he would see the righteousness of his son. Some of you today have come in here and you think your, your past is too bad. That there's too much sin in your past and you're dirty. You didn't even want to come in this morning for fear that the building would collapse. But God in his grace and his mercy and in his love calls on you to believe, to have faith in him, to turn from your sin and that you would receive Jesus' own righteousness. Jesus, the only one to live a perfect life, offers you his righteousness today and he takes your sin on the cross of Calvary. And he makes full satisfaction for your sin. He pays the penalty that you could never pay. You can try, but it'll take you an eternity apart from him to pay it. The great exchange. This is revealed from faith to faith, the text says. What does that mean, from faith to faith? I think it means this. It's that you come to faith. You come to a moment where you say, I believe, I have faith, but then your life is sustained by that same faith, by God's grace through faith. So that the gospel then, and the preaching of the gospel, is not just a one-time thing, or it's not just for baby Christians or unbelievers, but that the preaching of the gospel is life-giving to all Christians, and that all Christians need to be hearing the gospel and reveling in the gospel and enjoying the gospel and be reminded of the cross and the victory over sin, death, and the devil. It's from faith to faith, all the way to the end, the gospel is important. And so we preach the gospel here this morning. It is the very life for us. Martin Luther, in August of 1513, 
He was at the University of Wittenberg, and he began to deliver a course on, on the Psalms, a series of lectures. His mind at the time, as we mentioned already, it was preoccupied by this idea of, of, uh, of God's righteousness and how can I find a gracious God in Psalm 31.1, we read, In thy righteousness, deliver me. But Martin Luther's problem was, How can God's righteousness deliver me? Because I stand condemned before his righteousness. Because I am a lost sinner. And I can try, and I can beat myself up, and I can, I can change my behavior for a time. By the way, behavioral modification can only work for a little bit. And then you get tired, and then you give up. Behavioral modification will not make you right before God. Martin Luther was agonizing over this, and he kept coming back to Romans 117, that the righteous will live by faith. And there's a righteousness that comes from God, and it's salvation to everyone believed. And his eyes were open, and here's his own words. He said, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean the, the righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until... I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. It's not that the righteousness of God stands there to condemn us. It's that the righteousness of God is now free to those who have faith. This is the good news. This is why it's glorious. This is why our God is so good. Do you have faith in Him? Are you reborn, as Martin Luther would say, to the grace and mercy and love of our God through Jesus Christ? He's such a good God. The righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this word, your word. And as our, we, we are reminded by the reformers, and in Romans chapter 1, that we are called to live by faith. Lord, I pray that there would not be a one, even in this place today, that would not come, would not be removed from relationship with you because of lack of faith, but that you would give them the gift of faith for their life. We know that even the faith that you give us is a gift. So Lord, we pray. We thank you for your provision of salvation through Jesus Christ, for all that you save us from, and we embrace you as your people today by faith. I believe. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I want to live for you all my days. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. Through your grace alone, through faith alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.